We are starting, though, with an announcement that was made earlier today, and this is being called the next step in preventing the non-consensual sharing of intimate images. That was released earlier today from BC's Attorney General, Nikki Sharma. Listen to uh, Nikki Sharma answering questions about this and what this actually means when we're talking about rules and laws in BC dealing with big companies like Twitter, Pornhub, Grindr and Google. If the, if the companies don't comply, we have all the tools of our court system in order to enforce compliance. That means injunctions, that means court actions and court enforcement orders. Also, it's important under Section 12 of the, of the Act, it limits liability for intermediaries only if they've taken reasonable steps to take down that material. So they can expect that if they haven't taken those reasonable steps to take down those materials that have been found to be uh, distributed without consent, that they could face damage awards against them. Mm-hmm. You talked about the companies that were notified. Uh, did you get feedback from them about the applicability um, of, of those new regulations? Um, we are, that's the point of the letter today. We, we sent the letter out to all the major companies and we'll be continuing this dialogue to let them know that the, the changes in laws are coming and we expect compliance with British Columbia laws. I've met with Google so far to date, but I expect um, um, hopefully to be hearing from the other companies on how they'll be complying with these court orders. All right, that was BC's Attorney General Nikki Sharma. Let's bring in Richard Zussman, Global News reporter based in Victoria, to talk a little bit more about this, as well as some questions about the spending that has been released, uncovered, of another MLA. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure as always. Let's first talk about what was announced earlier today. The province saying it's taking the next step in preventing non-consensual sharing of intimate images. What is this actually going to do? Yeah, a bit of this is a shot across the bow here against these social media companies like Google and Facebook, as well as uh, companies that are dating services or pornography websites. Ultimately, the province is attempting to put these companies on warning. But the big challenge here, obviously, is around jurisdiction. So specifically, the Attorney General has written a letter to these companies to inform them that BC has this new law in place around uh, the sharing of non-consensual images. And it is, in fact, against the law and is leaning on these companies to say when one of these things is reported that an image is being shared, it be removed from a search engine be removed from social media, be removed from one of these websites. And the Attorney General is hoping to have a face-to-face meeting with these companies. Google has agreed to one already. That meeting is done. But there has been resistance from some of these other companies who, in some cases, rely on sharing these types of images in order to increase their own profits. And I know this came up in the announcement as well. Why would a company like this, the ones you mentioned, why are they going to sit down with the B.C. government in that? And and it's not even really in the B.C. government's jurisdiction, is it? So this is the huge issue, right? So if an image is shared online that may originate out of B.C., but is shared from a different province or a different country altogether, what jurisdiction does BC have and how can BC enforce that? When I asked the minister about that, she said BC has tools uh, with the prosecution service to reach across borders in order to compel companies to follow BC law. But it becomes complicated based on where the offense is committed. Ultimately, Sherman's answer is the reason the company should want to meet with her is because it's the right thing to do to protect people from these images being shared as we continue to see instances of this 
not just continue, but increase in terms of, um, you know, personal photos uh, being shared uh, and then uh, going on the Internet and being moved all over the place. And so uh, I'm not sure the best interests are aligned here, considering some of these companies profit and benefit from sharing these types of pictures. But it is against the law. And so we will see that I believe, Jill, that this is going to be a huge test in terms of, in, in some ways, global precedent about how um, governments can try to enforce these sort of rules, because this is not just the BC issue. We are seeing uh, this issue uh, around the world. Right. And, and like you said, it's, it is against the law. So are there not, is this to kind of uh, bolster the law that already exists and uh, to add to it? Or, or how would this make things yeah. different? Yeah, so this is the new law that was just introduced uh, in this legislative session and just recently passed. And now they are, you know, doing the education piece of this. And, uh, you know, part of the law is requiring social media companies and pornography companies and dating services to remove these videos or images from online. But another piece of this is putting in fines in place for those who share that information. And there's a huge education piece as well, you know, working with schools and community groups to inform people about uh, the risks of this and, and about the fact that if you are sharing these images without consent, you are breaking BC law and the ramifications that come with that. So there's a lot of pieces that come with this legislation. Today really was about going after these social media companies. It's a headline grabber, right? We all know these companies, Facebook and Google and Provincial government is just trying to, to make some headlines here, get some news coverage to let the public know that this legislation is now in place and try to put some public pressure on these companies as well uh, to, in essence, do what the B.C. government says is, is the right thing to do here, which is have a meeting and comply when you're asked to remove these images. Right, which which does make sense. And I think we can all agree, nobody wants their images, their intimate images shared against yeah. their will without them knowing. But, and not to only focus on the jurisdiction, but you kind of touched on this. If a photo, say a photo of a BC resident is taken while they're on vacation in Europe and it's shared in Europe and then they, they hear of it, how on earth is that in the jurisdiction of BC? Yeah, this is the problem. There's a lot of lawyers that are a lot smarter than you and I, Jill, who work for the provincial government who are processing through these issues right now. But this is going to be one of those things that lawyers around the world study to see how does this legislation work and are there jurisdictional issues uh, that apply here? Like you said, if a BC resident takes a photo in a different jurisdiction or if that uh, photo may originate here but is shared somewhere else or the companies that are doing the sharing are based somewhere else, how does that work? And, and so, you know, part of this is going to be, you know, working through the legal process that there, there, there are protections that British Columbians have, but there are going to be a lot of jurisdictional issues. And these companies, some of them, um, you know, are doing everything they can to protect their right to to possess these images either for privacy or in some cases for profits. All right. So that was announced earlier today. Uh, some other news coming out of your neck of the woods and some questions about MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert and some expenses that he's been billing to taxpayers. Yeah. So Spencer Chandra Herbert is one of the best known MLAs, especially in his uh, community of Vancouver West End. Uh, he is a staple in the community, has been a long time member for that community. And it was revealed today uh, in the legislature by BC United that he no longer lives in the riding. Not only does he no longer live in Vancouver, he no longer lives in the mainland. He lives here on Vancouver Island. 
And um, part of that was a decision their family made uh, to raise their son uh, here in the Victoria area. But because of that decision, uh, he has been incurring some really significant expenses traveling back to Vancouver. And there's two things here that BC United argued. First off, there is the expense piece, up to $70,000 in expenses. Some of them include flights from Victoria to Vancouver just to have a, a day in the constituency office, and in some cases, a number of days in the constituency office. And the other piece is around communicating with his constituents. He ran in the 2020 election in Vancouver West End without informing uh, members of his community that he no longer lived there. And uh, it had not been communicated broadly to the community that he no longer lived there. So BC United is bringing this up as an issue uh, in question period, uh, largely around that issue of trust and communication, but also around the issue of just where taxpayer dollars are being spent, that if you're going to live in a certain community, representing that community, uh, is part of that responsibility and, and who ultimately should be footing that bill? Should it be the individual who chose to live somewhere else or should it be the taxpayer? Right. And you mentioned that uh, his total expenses or travel expenses uh, around $70,000, uh, not all related to the fact that he doesn't live in his riding anymore. But I, I right. saw the number. One of them was a $790 flight to fly to his riding, host a BC, an NDP pub night, and then return home to Colwood, which I think people might look at and say, why are taxpayers footing the bill for that? Yeah, and it could be something that's paid for by the party or the individual, especially if you're going to book these in advance. You know, often uh, MLAs travel at the highest rates. You know, they need to get to and from a lot of places. I think the public understands that MLAs need to travel here to Victoria and around the province to do their work. But when you're not upfront with people about where you are living, then it leads to additional expenses. So mileage is also charged here. There were some situations where mileage was billed uh, from residents um, in Colwood to a meeting in Parksville on the island. There's going to be questions about whether this is consistent with um, how other MLAs receive expenses and have things paid back. So uh, we expect to hear more from Senator Herbert at some point today around uh, this issue, but the expectation is uh, it will be about family, and that's why the decision was made. What we really wonder about is what does this mean uh, in terms of, you know, who approved these sort of decisions? Were people part of that conversation? And, and are these the sort of expenses that other MLAs uh, would be allowed to make as well? Right. So have we heard anything from him or any explanation for this uh, at this point? No, it, he's been tied up in the legislature, but the expectation is sometime very, very soon uh, we will hear from this. My understanding is he would like to you know, speak to this issue, explain to uh, his community uh, what these allegations are all about. And we'll obviously have all of that on the news hour tonight uh, because, uh, you know, whenever expense issues come up, we want to make sure that the public is acutely aware, not just of the expenses, but of the explanation of why. So we'll have lots of coverage on that uh, through the day. Uh, we'll have a story on NW later today, too, so that uh, people get a sense for, for the explanation of this. But we expect to hear from you very, very soon. All right, sounds good. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. My pleasure as always. Well, we are joined now by a North Vancouver resident, somebody who has created a nonprofit organization. It is called the Grassroots Hero Foundation. And David Hutton is on the line. Thank you so much for taking some time. And thanks for having me, Phil. Really appreciate it. 
Well, I, anything really to keep what is happening in Ukraine in the news and uh, reminding people of what is still happening on the ground there. Uh, this is a foundation which focuses on getting aid to people on the front lines. How did you start this or, or what was kind of the, the point where you decided you wanted to go forward and make this foundation? Yeah, well, first, I, you know, while, while I started the foundation, I think it really, it really speaks to the people in, in Ukraine and the many people that, that support the foundation. So while I'm fortunate to have been there and, and to work directly with people, I really have to uh, give out a, a huge thank you and, and appreciation for those people who, who um, continue to think about Ukraine and, and continue to support the foundation, but people in Ukraine. How it started, you know, I've, I've spent... Um, about 20 years in the humanitarian field and worked for the United Nations. And, you know, as you know, the, the war in Ukraine, it, it, it's shocking and you see the suffering on TV. And I, I really felt compelled to, to try to help as, as much as I could. So I had the opportunity to, to go to Ukraine with a large organization. Um, and, you know, a couple of things that, that really stood out. One thing, you know, really big organizations, it's difficult to reach out to volunteers and smaller organizations for 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 many reasons and, and for many good reasons. But I was really struck by the incredible volunteerism, the strength and the resiliency of people. And meeting people who on February 24th just opened their own apartment doors to to welcome people and, and to support them in any way possible, to provide them food, to provide them uh, shelter, to provide them clothing, uh, to provide support to to children. Um, and having met them and really having seen that it takes so little to make a difference, it just simply takes a decision to make that difference, that in many ways I felt I didn't have a choice but, but to provide some support. And it's incredible, you know, the small amounts of money in the right hand um, makes an incredible difference. So having met these people and being able to, to provide some immediate support there, um, when I returned to Canada, I started a, uh, a GoFundMe account. And I just really believe if we're if, if somebody's trusting me with, with funds, then I need to be accountable and transparency. And that's where I shifted over to a, to a nonprofit organization to ensure that. But really, it just speaks to having the privilege uh, uh, to witness the incredible people of Ukraine. Hmm. And when you were there, how long were you there? And I'm wondering, can you tell us a bit about what what kind of stayed with you the most or what kind of things did you see? Yeah, so I was there for six months with a large organization in the Odessa uh, area. So we had operations in Odessa, Mykolaiv, and in a number of other areas. you know, large organizations are incredibly important. They bring in, in large amounts of funds, which are which are necessary. What really struck me is a couple of things is, is one, you know, you really see that it's an entire society effort. You know, people are providing, uh, opening their doors and providing uh, support to people who've displaced, who've lost everything and who find themselves in a, in a new city. Um, you see so many people, you know, young women, families, mothers who who are now raising their their children. Sometimes when they've lost their own homes, when their husbands are at, are at the front lines fighting. Um, and what really struck me, despite the suffering and, and and despite the incredible strength, 
the the willingness of people to to contribute. The other thing I think is is important is the longer the war goes on, you know, the more difficult it comes. Uh, despite we talk about resiliency, it's not a bottomless pit. But how much people appreciate being remembered by by the world and and some tangible support it makes a huge difference not only to the people receiving support, but to those with volunteers that they can continue to do the work and and that that point that I just made that they're being remembered by other people around the world and it that 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 part of resiliency too is is, is having having that knowledge that you're not alone. And do you still have people then, or does the organization have people still on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah, so we have a very small organization, um, very low cost. Every every penny that's donated to us goes directly to Ukraine. So I incorporated the uh, the nonprofit with my own funding. Um, any other related expenses, I've been fortunate that I've been able to cover it. So. Um, the money goes directly to organizations that I met while there. Um, I also have somebody that I worked with while I was in Ukraine who can who can help make arrangements and so forth. So all the money that I raise goes to organizations of volunteers that I've actually met. They usually reach out to me and say, you know, we have a specific cause. Um, can you support this way? And they usually send photographs and all the expenses, so it's quite transparent. Um, you know, this is one example you know, we, we often provide um, support to children's activities, um, to pensioners. But just a couple of weeks ago, somebody reached out and, and told the story about Valentina, who's also a pensioner. Uh, she's displaced without family, who who's going to lose her eyesight without surgery. And we were able to provide that money to her, and, and she had the surgery, and it was successful. So just these, these having these individual contacts, um, because there's sometimes no other sources of funding for them. Um, again, having the direct contacts, people that you know, people that you trust, and as you can see, for less than four hundred dollars, right, you, you save somebody's eyesight, which is which is quite incredible in and of itself. Oh yeah. How do you connect with people then? Like you said, there was that gap that you were seeing with the bigger organizations. But how are you able then to connect with people and and make sure people on the ground in Ukraine on those front lines that need this help, they know that you're there and that you're available and ready to do that? Yeah, so <clears throat> I was fortunate with when I when I was in Ukraine, I was with an organization. I was doing mental health and psychosocial support. And of course, when you do that, ideally you work through different organizations. So, part of part of whenever you develop a program at the outset is to reach out and, and to identify, of course, what people need. But everybody has capacities. Everybody has strengths as well. So, you know, we developed some very strong relationships and partnerships with some organizations. But it, it, as I said at the beginning of the interview. For a large organization, of course, there's accountability, there's transparency, there's there's rules and regulations, especially if you're receiving funding from, from government. So it's really hard to provide smaller funds to volunteers or smaller organizations. Fortunately, as as when I was there, I was able to to meet people, um, some of these incredible volunteers and smaller organizations. And before I left, you know, uh, make sure I had the contact information, we knew one another, and identify how we might be able to support them. So again, I think part of the success of this is having been there 
having met with people individually, having initiated that support, and then coming here and, and just maintaining that contact and that commitment to them. And like you said, so important that these initiatives continue as the war continues and uh, and goes on. Uh, how can people get involved or learn more about your organization? Well, certainly, you know, we have, um, if people want to make a donation, that's always welcome. But, you know, I, I, if people have great ideas of, of how they want to contribute or other ways to contribute, always re- would love to hear from them. So, you know, we have a... Um, I have two options of where people might donate should they wish to to donate, and one is um, is a GoFundMe that I initially started, and that's um, um, that that I can I can give you the website for that. And we also sure. have the now that we also have the uh, formal website website for the Grassroots uh, Hero Foundation, and that's simply grassrootsherofoundation.com. Um, and again, if people, they can donate through that. Or there's also um, a link for if people want to get involved or ask questions. On that, I explain, um, you know, any questions that people might have. There's a gallery of pictures. There's also stories about people that we support um, and that people uh, that are receiving some assistance. I just really think that, you know, when people give money, it's, it's more than... It's more than giving, it's about relationships and it's about people. And I think that's also at the heart of this. It's, we want to smart, we want to support those people who otherwise couldn't receive funding. But let's always remember that there's a story behind the person. And there's, you know, that person is always a mother or father or brother or sister. So I, I try to capture within that. Um, so there's that website where people get additional information or the Everyday Hero Fund. For Ukraine, and that's the GoFundMe account. But again, uh, you know, money is important, but so is, is, is having ideas and reaching out to us. Really would appreciate any support um, or any ideas that people have. It's, you know, it's all about people, whether it's supporting people in Ukraine or meeting people here and remembering that we just may have to make a decision, and it takes really very little to make, a, make an incredible difference in people's lives. All right. Well, David, thanks so much for talking about this today. And uh, I'll, I'll give people the website again so people can check that out. But thank you so much for your time. And thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Flooding in Cash Creek, we've been hearing about that today. It has prompted more evacuation orders. It is causing significant damage in that community. And joining us with the very latest is Brett Meneer. Brett is the host of the NL Newsday on Radio NL. Brett, great to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this. Hey, great to talk to you, Jill. What is happening? What is the situation there now? Well, right now we've got uh, Highway 97 and Highway 1 closed at basically the juncture where they link up sort of right in the middle of uh, Cache Creek right there. And that is because uh, water from the Cache Creek is running across both routes. Um, it's running down the road a little bit at Highway 97, also running down uh, Highway 1 a little bit. And uh, at last... Conversation with uh, Cash Creek Mayor John Ranta. It was beginning to kind of wash away and undercut sort of at the side of the road on uh, both the Trans Canada and Highway 97. 
So uh, right now the, the, the route is closed. The water runs through the uh, local fire hall, and uh, it obviously fills up parking lots and that kind of thing, as uh, you've seen in some of the images on uh, television. I, I heard the, the fire chief talking about that as well, that it has gone through the fire hall. So has that effectively shut down the fire hall? Yeah, I mean, they find ways to, uh, to to keep on doing their thing, obviously, right? Um, the, the thing about the flooding of the fire hall, too, is that this is something that has now happened several years in a row. Like, this seems to be like almost like a ritual in Cache Creek now, and it has a lot to do with the infrastructure along Cache Creek. It's been very problematic for a number of years, uh, where roads go over Cache Creek, often there are not bridges, there are culverts, and they tend to be undersized culverts. So one of the problems that keeps leading to flooding in Cache Creek every year, though not necessarily to this degree, but, you know, water running across the road and filling the parking lots and all that through the fire hall, that's also not necessarily new in the last few years. Um, there's this this uh, quartz road or whatever. It's just uh, it's about uh, I don't know maybe half a kilometer down uh, Highway One towards Kamloops from uh, Cash Creek. And at that spot there, there's these culverts that uh, Cash Creek has to pass through. They very easily get uh, overwhelmed. Then they very easily get gummed up with stuff. And then the river starts to back up, and then that's when you see the water then starting to go across the highway about half a kilometer up the road. And um, they've been looking for funding to build a, a, a bridge there. They applied for a grant from the UBCM. They needed $750,000. That was back in uh, 2020. Uh, that grant funding request was denied. Um, and, uh, you know, they basically figured this would alleviate these problems during spring freshet. Um, instead, in uh, 2020, they did get funding from the province for a flood mitigation plan. That plan was completed in 21. And, uh, but the funny thing is, is in that plan, you know, a lot of what's in there in terms of infrastructure are the very same things, right, that mayor and council and the one before that had been asking for and, you know, not getting anywhere. Uh, you're right, because I've been hearing uh, people being quite critical and, and mentioning what you said, that this is happening year after year and wanting something to, to be done about it, to be changed, when mm -hmm. clearly they know what the problem is and what the issue is. Uh, am I yep. correct in saying there has already, I thought I heard John Ranta, the mayor, saying that there was uh, one house that has been destroyed as well? Yeah, yeah, that's that's my understanding as well. One property has been destroyed. I know the um, the orders, the evacuation orders and whatnot uh, as well have sort of expanded as, you know, as the creek backs up more and more, right, at these various uh, culvert, uh, you know, crossings. It's not just Quartz Road. There's a couple there's there's a couple right that because mm -hmm. uh, the Ca cash creek it kind of travels alongside um, Highway One towards Kamloops for a little bit before it kind of goes under and continues on its way and uh, every place where there's like a little uh, road that comes off of you know the trans canada to get into some of the more residential areas of cash creek it backs up basically at every single one of those so like they they need bridges they've known that they need bridges but this is a this is a problem that is actually quite widespread throughout the entire southern interior we're going right from uh, we're having very strong spring freshets there's a lot of melting that happens very quickly. It's, it's happened more and more over the years where, uh, you know, we're getting temperatures approaching 30 degrees late April and into May, and it causes, you know, rapid snow melt this year a little bit more because it remained cool, and then it suddenly 
just flipped. So there's all this snow. It's not. It, it's up in the higher alpine areas. It melts. It all comes down. You see road washouts, not just in places like uh, Cache Creek, but along some of these like forest service roads. And some of those roads are sort of the lifeline connection for for like wilderness resorts and that kind of thing. So you do see these problems also on a lot of reserves as well, right? They have a lot of this same type of uh, problem with 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 infrastructure. Right. And do you get any uh, impression when we've seen the images as well as well of the the sandbags and people doing whatever they can to kind of protect things against the high waters? Did you get any sense or do you have any sense at this point uh, about the roads or when this is expected to kind of the waters are expected uh, to go down? I think the hope is uh, next week, probably by mid next week, just given uh, the, the problem right now isn't just the snow melt, it is, it's, it's some of the rain. We've had these sporadic thunder showers kind of coming through and you know how those can you know dump a lot of rain in a very short period of time. So uh, there's been a, a, a little bit of that and then there's just been regular old rain, uh, something of which the entire region has been pretty desperate for, but uh, it just comes at, uh, you know, at, a, at a bad time. The other problem around Cache Creek, though, too, is you have to remember that the Elephant Hill wildfire a number of years back stripped, you know, all of the vegetation and the trees and everything from many of the nearby slopes and and definitely up higher in some of the alpine areas. So, uh, you know, that increases the risk of uh, flooding and landslides because that water doesn't get absorbed, right? So they've, so, you know, a lot of Cache Creek's problems uh, got a lot worse after the Elephant Hill wildfire as well back in, uh, boy, when was that? 20, I want to say 2019, but I'm not sure all of these seas, 2017, maybe all of these are blending together now in my head. Yeah, no, I think I think for a lot of people, because uh, like you said, and like residents are aware, it's uh, happening uh, yearly now. Uh, Brett, we'll leave it there, but we will continue to watch and see what's happening with the roads and with those high waters. Thanks so much for do, for doing this. You bet. Well, uh, I think it's not a secret that Vancouver has some pretty good restaurants, lots of different styles and types of food, no matter what you're really feeling like. If you've ever been on a foodie tour, you know those can be fun. If you've ever wanted to go on one, well, you are in luck. Joining me now is Michelle Ng, the founder of Vancouver Foodie Tours. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. This is really exciting that the Vancouver Foodie Tours, the Gastronomic Gastown Tour is coming back. Can you tell us a little bit about this tour? Yes, absolutely. So the Gastronomic Gastown Tour is an evening multi-course dinner experience where we take guests to uh, three different gourmet restaurants in Gastown for appetizers, main course and desserts while learning about the history of Gastown um, as well as um, just the very real aspects of of what Gastown is going through today and um, into the future. And uh, I mentioned too, this is the return. So had this tour kind of been on hiatus for a while? It has been. Uh, it's actually been on hiatus for the last three years during the pandemic um, as we had to pause the business and uh, because Gastown has been going through a phase of rebuilding as well. So we have waited until um, this spring to relaunch this tour, which was actually our most popular foodie tour pre-pandemic. Hmm. How do you decide which restaurants to put on the tour? 
You know, it really is um, the restaurants that are most iconic to the neighborhood. And I always think about it um, as if, if I had guests and friends and family visiting Vancouver and they have a short time uh, to explore. They love food. What are the places they must experience and taste from? And those are the restaurants that I invite onto the tours. And does it change then from tour to tour or are they the same restaurants that people will go to each time? Yeah, so there are changes that uh, will happen from day to day. We work with a a small um, core roster of restaurants. Um, And of course, um, there's um, there are days when, you know, we have uh, larger groups or multiple tours. And so it gives us the flexibility to be able to cater to um, single groups or sometimes we have conference or birthday groups that require multiple guides at at the same time. So it's nice to have more restaurants to draw from and also to be able to showcase um, more of the great restaurants in Gastown. Uh, You mentioned, too, that this is the most popular one. Why is it, do you think, or what do you hear from people as to why this is the favorite one? Yeah, um, Gastown is uh, is a huge destination for both uh, locals and visiting food lovers. Um, and Gastown being the the uh, birthplace of Vancouver, there's just so much interesting history that you can appreciate um, about Vancouver. Um, and uh, and and also Gastown really is. Um, the place for a lot of um, inventive, creative, gourmet restaurants that locals really love uh, going out to for a date night. There are so many great inventive cocktails and, you know, uh, wine bars and and, um, and beer options as well. Um, and so people really love the gourmet aspects of our tour, the more upscale premium experience that Vancouver Foodie Tours offers. And the alcohol pairings also really sweeten the deal. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Sounds like a a little bit of something for everybody. Uh, If somebody's an adventurous uh, eater or likes trying new things or even kind of more traditional. Absolutely. And and, um, we we cater to vegetarians and pescatarians, no problem. So we really do see a wide range of different uh, food lovers, but also um, history lovers and just those who really want to um, get re- reacquainted with uh, their own city. Um, we actually get lots of locals that join our tours all the time, and they're always amazed and impressed by um, the new things uh, and uh, great restaurants that they they will actually learn about uh, in their own backyard that they just weren't aware of or just didn't have that same depth of context and that's those stories that we share on our tours, which really make the food um taste better and experience so much more meaningful when you understand uh, the stories behind a place and the people and the businesses. I understand as well that you are working with uh, Atira, the the Women's Resource Society, and some of the the money that uh, comes in for the foodie tour tickets goes to help out that organization. Yes, that's correct. Um, we actually uh, support two different uh, women-focused um, organizations in Gastown and the downtown east side. As you mentioned, Atira is one of them. Um, and for us, our business, Thank You for Foodie Tours, um, our really core purpose is to generate happiness and appreciation for everybody we're able to 
um, connect with, and, um, and and we really believe in uplifting the community. Um, and so the reason why we decided to work with these two organizations is one, um, Atira really does a great job of providing that baseline security and uh, and um, housing for. Uh, women and children who have been impacted by violence, um, and um, and and I really believe that in in order for people to to thrive, you really need to have your basic um, needs met, and that includes housing and food, sense of safety, um, and um, and as a very small entrepreneurial business, um, we really also wanted to. Uh, support the second uh, charitable organization called Employees Empower, um, and their um, mandate is to utilize entrepreneurial uh, skill sets and and um, and just just the process of um, building your own business to build a sense of community and increase confidence as you're able to um, to build up your um, your skill sets. And so uh, we, we really believe as a business um, to courageously dream and chase after your own dreams. And so um, that organization really aligns with our core values as well. So we see it as, as, as a two-step process. Um, first, you need your, your housing um, and food and the basic necessities of life. Um, and once you're able to ch- attain those, then it's... Um, it's kind of climbing that, that, that ladder onto more aspirational um, needs and uh, potentially building a business while leveraging your own uh, talents and gifts uh, into um, a thriving, contributing member of society, which I uh, think is something that we, we all aspire to do. And it's just such a fulfilling work. How can people find out more or even sign up and take one of the tours? Yes, uh, so our, our website address uh, is foodietours.ca um, and you can find out uh, details of uh, all three of our different foodie tours on there and purchase uh, tickets directly as well. All right, Michelle, it sounds great. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Thank you, Joe.